Hello, I'm Alice Su. For months, I've been investigating how the Chinese government is trying to silence and control Uyghurs outside China. This is the first episode of The Cage, a special two-part series for Drum Tower. Before, I didn't really understand those folk tales. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, now it's clear. Now it's clear for me. I've known Abdueli Ayoub for years. He's a linguist and an activist. And he's from a city in China's northwestern region of Xinjiang. He used to run a school there teaching his mother tongue, Uyghur. Abdueli was imprisoned and tortured for that back in 2013. After his release, he left China. He eventually ended up in Norway, where he's been helping journalists to cover Xinjiang from outside. But that work has been getting harder. Uh, like, uh, there is a bird in the cage, mm. and um, there's another guy who's really strong. But his life is not the real life. A few months ago, I met Abdueli in Istanbul, and he told me an old Uyghur folktale. If the caged bird is alive and singing, the strong person outside the cage is alive and singing too. But if the caged bird dies, the person outside the cage dies as well. Wiggers outside, just like a shadow. Uh. A lot of shadow are walking outside. But real life, spread spirit, is in the cage. The cage in Abdueli's story is his homeland, Xinjiang, where more than a million Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities were locked in re-education camps from 2017 to 2019. During that time, most Uyghurs outside China were cut off from everyone they knew in Xinjiang. My foreign friends can't understand it. They can't believe this is possible in the 21st century. They ask me, why don't you just call your parents? I told them I couldn't reach my parents. They say, I should just call my mom. Do they think I am a fool? I know how to call my parents. Even a fool knows how to do that. My friends just don't understand. They grew up in a very free world. China's government has closed many of the re-education camps in Xinjiang. And Beijing paid a small price for those camps. Several countries sanctioned Chinese officials. The camps tarnished China's reputation in the West. Several world leaders have traveled to Beijing for the Games, but other nations, including the US, Britain and Canada, have declared a diplomatic boycott over China's human rights record, specifically its treatment of Muslim Uyghurs. China denies human rights abuses. Australia's joined the United States in staging a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympic Games over human rights violations. A spokesman for China said nobody cares about the Australian boycott. These days, China wants the world to move on. Its diplomats have been talking about lifting sanctions and restarting a stalled investment agreement with the EU. Beijing has been sending influencers and bringing delegations of foreign visitors to Xinjiang to promote tourism and trade. China's leaders want the world to think that everything there is back to normal. Part of that is sealing off the truth of what really happened in Xinjiang and what's happening there right now. But there's one group of people who know too much. The Uyghurs outside China. 
and a few of them still want to speak out. A couple of years ago, I started to hear that many Uyghurs were getting back in touch with their families inside Xinjiang. That seemed positive. At first, I thought it was a regular person who was taking a risk to help me. By that point, I was just dying to hear the news. It was only when I traveled to Istanbul, home to one of the largest Uyghur communities outside China, that I began to understand the price people were paying to speak with their families again. And because of Chinese government put the bird in the cage, they don't need to control those shadows because they don't have real life. They don't have real spirit. The real spirit is inside in that bird, Mm -hmm. in the cage. I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei. In this first episode of our two-part series, The Cage, I'm looking at how the Chinese government is trying to normalize its crimes in Xinjiang. Beijing wants the world to forget about the camps. It wants Uyghurs overseas to stop speaking about the past. It wants them to comply with China's vision for the future. The Chinese government is now trying to silence and control Uyghurs overseas, by using what they care about most, their families. And I wanted to find out, is it succeeding? This is Drum Tower, from The Economist. This neighborhood uh, we call uh, Safakwe and uh, Uyghurs are uh, living there. It's the biggest Uyghur community here. A few weeks ago, I traveled to Istanbul to visit the working class suburb of Sefakoy. This is where many Uyghurs live, and it's obvious just walking around. There are Uyghur restaurants selling samsa, these really crispy baked lamb buns, and lagman, the famous Uyghur hand-pulled noodles. You can see Uyghur writing and Arabic script on the walls, and the shops are selling topas, their traditional hats, and ikat-patterned atlas silk. There are also a lot of light blue flags of East Turkestan. They symbolize independence for Xinjiang. In China, these would be called separatist flags, and anyone who dared to wave one would be detained. But here, they're common. Uyghurs have been living in Turkey since the 1950s, when Xinjiang was taken over by the People's Liberation Army. Over the years, tens of thousands of Uyghurs have settled here. More people come when there are spikes in political repression back home. Even though he doesn't live here, Abdueli seems to know everyone in the neighborhood, He's been coming to Turkey for years, often bringing journalists to collect testimonies from people whose families have disappeared or been detained. One of his friends volunteers to drive us around. We listen to an old song in the car. It's by a Uyghur musician who's been detained. This area is, uh, most of them are like um, refugees and uh, like immigrants. So people uh, found their home here. Abdueli is really trusted, which is important when he's bringing reporters like me, 
who have Chinese faces. There are a lot of cases of mutual spying going on in this community. In 2020, a Uyghur man was shot on the streets in Istanbul after speaking publicly about how he had been forced to report on fellow Uyghurs to the Chinese authorities. In 2023, there were reports of a Uyghur filming other Uyghurs at a barbershop, again to send videos to police back home in Xinjiang. I can feel people tensing up when they see my face, but when they see Abdueli, they relax. <laughs> we spent a lot of time speaking with Uyghurs whose families had been detained, but one of the interviews that stuck out to me the most actually wasn't in Sefakoi. It was with a woman named Nagara. She's 32. She has long hair falling past her shoulders and an elegant way of carrying herself. She lives far away from all the other Uyghurs, alone in a seaside apartment on another side of the city. I've loved Turkey since I was a child. I dreamed of seeing it. Nagara doesn't spend much time in the Uyghur neighborhoods of Istanbul. In fact, Abdulli makes fun of her for speaking more Turkish than Uyghur these days. We sit together and eat quietly in her meticulously clean apartment. We're talking only through Abdueli's translation, until at one point she realizes that I speak Chinese. <laughs> and then we talk directly. When I was a child, I didn't watch TV. I didn't follow politics. I didn't know anything. We were an ideologically normal family. By ideologically normal, Nagara means that growing up, her family was in line with the Chinese Communist Party. They weren't pro-independence, they weren't radical, they weren't political, period. Nagara's family got along well with their Han Chinese neighbors. My neighbors, my friends, my father's friends, his business partners are all Han Chinese people. When I was a child, my father would go to the mainland on business trips. He had a fruit transportation company. His fruits was very good. It never had bruises. It was perfect for export. His Han friends would often come to our house. We'd invite them for dinner or eat with them in restaurants. They would give us presents and red envelopes on festivals when we were young. So the last thing Nagara was expecting when she came to Istanbul was any kind of trouble. Unlike others I spoke to, she didn't leave Xinjiang to escape. She left China nearly 10 years ago, in her early 20s, because she'd fallen in love. I was a bit naughty at that age. He was a boy from Turkey. He was very handsome. He had blonde hair and brown eyes. When I met him, my family also knew him. They said... He came from a good family. My family was happy, so I decided to come here with him. But a lot of things happened when I was here and I broke up with him. Even so, I decided to stay in Istanbul because I've always wanted to live here. That's why I came. But leaving her family wasn't easy. Nagara was really close to her parents and to her two sisters, especially the youngest one. When she was a baby, I always looked after her. I bathed her, so I love her very much. When I was at the airport before I came to Turkey, I told her I would come back tomorrow, and I kiss her. She said to me, please come back. 
I haven't seen her since that day. Fast forward a few years to 2017. One day, Nagara returned to her apartment in Istanbul after a university class, and she got a call from her mom. Her mom said, take care of yourself and don't call us anymore. It was so sudden. At first, I didn't take it seriously. I just thought they meant they wouldn't call me for a few days and that would be it. When I asked why I couldn't call them, my mother was angry. She said, don't ask why or what happened, just do it. Then she hung up the phone. After that phone call, Nagara's family vanished from her life. Not for days, or for weeks, or months, but for years. There was no information, no contact. I just had to imagine where and what they are doing. Nagara's experience in 2017 wasn't unique. In the Uyghur neighborhoods of Istanbul, I met many others who'd lost contact with their families, and they reminded me that the backdrop to all this goes far beyond the camps of the last few years. Some of the Uyghur families I met told me stories about purges and labor camps going back to the Mao era. Others told me about fleeing after 2009, when violent ethnic riots broke out in Urumqi. It's been three days since bloody riots broke out, pitting ethnic Uyghur Muslims against the dominant Han Chinese. The spark? Two Uyghur factory workers died in a brawl with the Han. Now 156 people have been killed and more than 1,000 injured, making it the worst ethnic violence this country has seen in decades. Chinese authorities responded with a security crackdown, but that sparked more unrest. Throughout the early 2010s, Uyghur extremists retaliated with a series of attacks. They drove a car into a crowd in Tiananmen Square, killing two bystanders in 2013. There's been a ring of police around Kunming's main station. In 2014, they killed 39 civilians in a bomb and car attack on a market in Urumqi. The same year, attackers killed 31 people with knives in Kunming train station. There were accusations that Chinese police also killed Uyghurs in clashes in rural Xinjiang at that time, but there was no way of verifying those claims. To the Chinese government, Xinjiang was spiraling out of control. In 2014, it launched a strike-hard campaign against terrorism, separatism, and extremism. I was in Xinjiang in 2015 and 2016, and you could already feel that the mood was shifting. The police were checking young Uyghur men's IDs and phones on the streets and in the markets. In southern Xinjiang, on the rural roads, there were huge security checkpoints. My Uyghur driver and translator would go through full-body checks while I and other Han Chinese walked right through. Around that time was when Nagara moved to Istanbul, and many other Uyghurs started leaving or sending their kids abroad as well. I spoke to one on the phone. He lives in the United States. I came in second year of high school to Montana, which is like middle of nowhere. This is Koser Wyatt. He's 26. He's got long floppy hair that falls over his forehead and an easy smile. He lives in Boston now. Koser grew up in Atush, a city near Kashgar in Xinjiang's southwest. 
His dad worked for the local city government, and his mom was a teacher. His family wasn't political either. But they could tell that security in Xinjiang was getting tighter. There were new restrictions on fasting, praying, and wearing religious clothing. So I also had like passion for coming to U.S. and my dad. Probably he was wise enough to see things were getting worse by worse, like by year and year. And Koser's dad's instinct was correct, because the next year, in 2017, people in Xinjiang started to disappear. That included almost every intellectual in Xinjiang: the poets, the journalists, the sociologists, the linguists, the keepers of Uyghur culture and history. They were now considered threats to the Chinese state. Most of them remain imprisoned today. Back in Sefakoi, Abdulwali took me to a Uyghur bookstore. We did something you haven't been able to do for the last five years in Xinjiang. We flipped through the classics of modern Uyghur literature. Those publishers, all of them, got arrested, all of them, and the book burnt, and the publishers got arrested. Look, there's a, like I can tell you one by one they got arrested because uh, I I love those guys. This Abdurrahman Abay. He is the top guy, and uh, at that time, he is the like uh, boss of this, uh, like he is the chief of this uh, publishing house. So ironic, his name is in Chinese here. Yeah, like Abdurrahman Abay, Zerimbenji, Abdurrahman, yeah, Gushang Mochin, yeah, Abdurrahman Abay. He sentenced 18 years. Oh my God! So these editors, they're all still in prison right now. Right now, yeah, they are in in prison, uh, unfortunately. Is Chilla? This Chilar? one also sentenced. He sentenced eighteen uh, years. Oh, so the author is he still alive? No, he okay. he's alive, but he's not. Uh, he's in in jail. Mm. Yes, Abdelmetrozi got arrested in two thousand seventeen. It's really sad. But it wasn't just the intellectuals or the people who'd been involved in unrest in the past. It was anyone suspected of potential involvement in the future. Anyone who had traveled or had contacts abroad, anyone who had been reported for saying something potentially subversive, anyone who used foreign apps or who showed a hint of interest in religion—they were all detained, including Koser Wyatt's dad. In 2017, Koser was back at school. He was in his junior year of college in Illinois. He started to realize that something was wrong at home. His dad was never there when he called. At first, his mom tried to hide what was happening. She'd say, "Your dad is out with friends. His phone is dead." But Koser soon discovered that his father was in a re-education camp. And it hit me really hard because I was school,、uh, and my dad was my、um, role model. He was the one supporting me, both you know financially, spiritually. And then now, like I you know lost him, and I did not even know if he was alive, or you know I could not talk to him. Initially, there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. People were just disappearing, and it wasn't clear where they were going. Looking back now, we know that Koser's dad and more than a million others were taken to ad hoc detention facilities. These were often schools or community centers turned into jail cells where they had to study Mandarin and Xi Jinping thought. They had to sing patriotic songs like. Without the Communist Party, there is no new China, and recite Chinese political ideology. Some survivors have also said that they were beaten, electrocuted, and sexually assaulted. 
women have testified about forced IUDs and being sterilized. The Chinese government has denied all of this. It claims that these were, quote, vocational training schools to help Uyghurs and other Xinjiang residents out of poverty. Back in Illinois, Koster was hearing about all of this on the news, but he couldn't figure out what was happening to his own dad. He was talking to his mom every week on the phone, but they couldn't speak openly. There were always Chinese authorities listening. And Koster saw that other Uyghurs were starting to speak in public about their detained families. But he was too afraid. I was still afraid of speaking up because, you know, there is a fear that they put us inside. So even if my dad was taken... I'm afraid that if I do speak up, my dad would be sentenced 5, 10, 20 years. Or if my, if my dad is taken, my mom would be taken if I speak up, or my siblings, or my extended relatives. So there's always that fear that you know, we grew up with, that um, if we do anything you know, against them, they would come at us. And uh, even though I'm in the free world, my family, everyone is kept as a hostage. So I got to be careful with my actions here. In Istanbul, Nigara was also worried about her family. She tried everything she could to get back in touch with them, but she stayed away from activism. I have asked many people for help, and I have tried many ways. But I couldn't do it publicly because I was worried about them. Other than that, I did everything. I've tried, I've asked, I've begged for help for many years. I never gave up. Once in a while, Nagara would send messages to her mother or her sisters on WeChat. She'd say things like, I, I really miss you today. And she never got any reply. She heard that they weren't in any camps, but she couldn't confirm it. Abdueli, my guide, was lucky to have escaped China before the camps began. But his older brother and younger sister were both taken. Abdueli saw that cage closing around Xinjiang. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It took a while for the world to piece together what was happening in Xinjiang. Journalists started reporting on the camps right away in 2017, but it took almost two years for the story to come together. In 2019, someone leaked internal Chinese government documents detailing the mass internment campaign in Xinjiang. China doesn't want the world to see Xinjiang up close. To see the crackdown, it calls an answer to terrorism. There have only been fleeting glimpses of swelling detention centers, but now there's real proof. Secret blueprints of mass incarceration and indoctrination of Muslims. 
Activists started sharing satellite imagery that showed massive expansion of the camps and prisons and destruction of many shrines and mosques. Some detainees with foreign citizenship, especially Kazakhs, got out of China and started giving testimonies. Soon, Koser would be asked to do this too. That year, American lawmakers started calling for sanctions on China's senior officials. We are sending a message to Beijing. America is watching and we will not stand silent. China soon announced that it was closing the vocational schools. Xinjiang's governor said it was because everyone had, quote, graduated. And that was partially true. Some people were released from the camps, like Koser's father. But others, like his uncles and cousins, were still detained. Some might hear about the camps closing and think that Western condemnation had succeeded. China was changing its policy. But I think that's a misreading of what happened. Could it be that the camps had closed because they achieved their purpose? When I read the leaked Chinese government documents, I saw that there was a timeline for Xinjiang. Those camps were never meant to be permanent. They were just the first stage of a longer-term plan. There's a transcript of a secret speech that Chen Quanguo, the former party secretary of Xinjiang, gave in 2018. He talks about how Xinjiang should be stabilized in stages. The first stage has this intensive mass detention campaign, but then it moves to a stage of normalization. And Chen Chengguo emphasizes that normalization doesn't mean the strike hard campaign is over. Separatism is still a threat. Xinjiang still needs full police control. But that control should become less visible. The ad hoc camps were closed, but a parallel system of more formal detention and prisons was expanding. And the people released from the camps were still living under a web of invisible control. And soon, Uyghurs outside of China would start to feel that, too. My last trip to Xinjiang was in December 2020. Every China reporter has a story about being followed around by minders in Xinjiang. And by minders, we mean those people in plain clothes who wait in your hotel lobby, they try to stop you from taking pictures, and they harass everyone you talk to. That happened to me as well in Urumqi, the capital, and in Korla, the city that Nagara is from. But what really stuck out to me on that trip is what happened when I went to Kashgar, the heartland of Uyghur culture. That's Abdueli's hometown. Suddenly, all the minders disappeared. It was bizarre. I was able to walk around everywhere without anyone following me. And I saw young Uyghurs working as tour guides and chatting at the night markets. In fact, I could imagine that if I hadn't known about the camps and if I hadn't just been harassed so much in other parts of Xinjiang, I could think that this was a perfectly normal place. But that was an illusion, and it shattered on my last morning when I decided to go and try to meet a Uyghur intellectual. This was a man who had studied abroad, and his friends were desperate to know if he was alive or not. They told me they were sure he would want to see a reporter. They gave me his address. So I woke up early, and I left my phone and my laptop behind. Most compounds in Xinjiang have metal barriers and facial recognition at the entrances. But I got lucky. There was a group of Chinese parents bringing their kids out to school right when I arrived. They opened the gate. I slipped in. I found the apartment. And I rang the doorbell. 
he was there with his daughter and they wanted to talk. They explained why I didn't have minders. There was no need for them. Everyone in Kashgar was too afraid to say anything out of line. There were cameras everywhere and neighbors reporting each other and the constant threat of detention. The man's daughter had been through the camps. She told me Uyghurs inside of China had no hope left. She said, all we can think about is eating, sleeping, and staying out of the camps. We can't even imagine asking for anything else. And then she begged me to leave because she was afraid. That's what it was like inside the cage. So now the people inside Xinjiang had been silenced, and the Chinese government was preparing a new picture of the region to show the world. Momentum was building outside of China. Activists were calling for the UN Human Rights Commissioner to visit Xinjiang, so China wanted everything to look normal. But the biggest obstacle to that was the Uyghurs outside of China. They were the next targets. In 2021, Nagara started to hear that Uyghurs outside China were getting back in touch with their family inside Xinjiang. She had a friend who told her to check her WeChat. She told me, if you didn't do anything wrong, then why not seek the help of the police in the community? You can ask for help from your WeChat friends and add someone on WeChat. She explained to me as though it was no big deal. She made it seem like it was easy. Like, ask someone to go to your family's home and check on them. She said, why are you scared? So I thought, maybe I can do this. I logged into my WeChat account and I saw that I had lots of friend requests. I guess that was normal. So I accepted a friend request from a man. The man told Nagar right away in Uyghur that he was a police officer. But Nagara didn't flinch. She asked him to help her find her family. Because I would spend every day wishing to see my father and mother. This was my biggest hope. I wanted to make them happier and fulfill their dreams. I mean, I loved them so much. The policeman was helpful at first. He said he tried to call Nagara's father. But then... He came back with news that stunned her. Her father had died. I couldn't move. My eyes went black. After that, I asked him to let me speak to my mother. I wanted to hear the news from her own mouth. So the police officer went to Nagara's house, and he sent a recording of himself speaking with Nagara's mother. That was the first time Nagara had heard her mom's voice in four years. She played that recording for me. You can hear the policeman speaking to her mom. He says, I will help you. Treat me like your son. I can help you with anything. I asked Nagara what her mother said. She just said thank you. She didn't say anything else. She was afraid to say anything else. What can she say? My mother cried during the whole process. She seemed to be afraid. She was very upset. I know. I know because I heard her crying. Nagara couldn't tell whether any of what the policeman said was true. But she knew her mother's voice. She could hear the fear in it. And she knew that 
all the power over her family's lives were in the police's hands. Koser's story is different. Back in the U.S., he hadn't lost total touch with his family. He was calling his mom every week, and in 2019, his dad was released. Koser was able to talk to him, although they couldn't discuss the camps. But Koser felt guilty that he had been quiet this whole time. I felt bad that, you know, he just lost two years, almost two years, but nobody's held accountable. And even though he was released, I still had other relatives, cousins, uncles, and there were still millions of people still locked up. So I wanted to be more, a bit more vocal about these issues. And then he was approached by some activists. They were building an online database of all the Xinjiang detentions. They asked Koser, will you give a testimony about your dad? And he said, yes. My father's name is White Umar. He's 49-year-old. He is my role model. And for that, he paid a price. A week later, after uploading his testimony, Koser lost touch with his parents. For the next two years, he would be cut off from everyone he knew in Xinjiang. Then came the COVID pandemic and China's zero-COVID response. The government put many parts of the country under harsh lockdowns, including Xinjiang. Videos of people trapped in their homes, hungry and sick, were spreading on social media. Koser was worried. In 2021, he started calling his family's neighborhood committee back home in Atush. He'd call day and night, but when he told them that he was abroad, they would hang up. So then he called the district police station over a hundred times, he says, at all hours of the day, and they hung up on him too. But then, one time, a man picked up, and he asked for Koser's Chinese ID number. In the past, Koser would have hung up at this point, but this time he decided, whatever they want, let them have it. He gave them his number. Someone added Koser on WeChat. It was a man who later claimed to be the head of state security in Atush. So I added that person back and then there was nothing from him for another day. And then I asked him myself, I said, when can I talk with my parents? And he said, he, he told me time, he said uh, 1 p.m. on Monday. Koser couldn't believe it was really going to happen, but it did. It was the first time Koser and his parents had seen each other in more than two years. They can't say much. They just keep asking each other, how are you? How are you? I'm well. How are you? Koser's mom is wiping tears from her eyes. They talk for about 20 minutes. And then at the end of the call, Koser's parents say, okay, bye. And then the camera flips and it's the security agent. Koser told me that he said he needs to watch what he's doing to stop speaking publicly about Xinjiang. Nagara and Koser were finally both back in touch with their families, but it wasn't what they dreamed of. There were people controlling their interactions, members of the Chinese security state. These security agents were offering to help Uyghurs find their families, but those promises of help soon turned into requests and threats. He said, if you don't send me a naked picture, I'm going to put your mother in jail. 
Nigara would have to decide how much she would give up in order to speak to her family again. Next time on Drum Tower, we'll find out what happened to Nagara, Koser, and others who tried to reach their families through the police. And we'll see how that cage in Abdueli's folktale operates. How does the Chinese state use Uyghur's families to extend control beyond its borders? And how much are people being asked to give up for the sake of those that they love most? The second episode of The Cage is available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram. Research was by Constance Chang. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Our executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Sound design is by Nico Rofast and Wei Dong Lin. Drum Tower's music was composed by Jocelyn Tan, and additional music is by Alim Jen and Nun Sounds. Our thanks to Makadas Mijit. You can read my reporting, which accompanies this podcast, on The Economist's website. If you subscribe already, thank you. If you don't, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. Drum Tower.